Shalom and welcome to this week's special Hanukkah lecture. And the title is Toot Your Horn, Creating Your Personal Hanukkah Miracle. I'm going to take a moment just to uh, put into the um, comments a uh, link to the written, to the written um, lecture. And there you go. Okay, so uh, what is the modern day practical issue that we're going to lead to in this mystical lecture and here it is one of the beautiful scenes of uh, fiddler on the roof is when tevye gives his blessings to his oldest daughter title to marry muttle the tailor and then muttle breaks out into song singing the classical miracle of miracles the song lists, in the lyrics of the song, it lists the famous miracles that God performed for the famous people throughout the uh, history, the Jewish history, and then goes on to say, and I'm going to quote to you three pieces of the lyrics. They could be at the end. But of all, God, of all God's miracles, large and small, the most miraculous one of all is that out of a worthless lump of clay, God has made a man today. Wonders of wonders, miracles of miracles, God took the tailor by the hand, turned him around, and miracles of miracles led him to the promised land. But of all God's miracles, large and small, the most miraculous one of all is the one I thought could never be. God has given you to me. Now, what is the point of these lyrics? What is the point of it is that the greatest of miracles is when a miracle happens to me. In other words, for the individual person who is experiencing it. And let me quote to you the verse and understand how this works. The verse states, Hashem Tzilcha, God is your shadow. According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, what does this mean? That just like the shadow responds to the person moving, so too God is saying, I am going to respond and react to the action of you. And therefore, according to this, we can get God to respond to us and perform for us a miracle in our lives. How is this done? So, this lecture is based primarily on a mimer, a mystical teaching that the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbat Hanukkah in 1969, exploring what the Jewish people did in the times of the Syrian Greeks in order to bring about the miracle of Hanukkah. So it's not just a miracle happened. The Jewish people did something, and God, being our shadow, reacted to what we did and thus brought us a miracle. If we can understand this, we can understand how we each individually can bring a miracle into our own lives. Okay, let's go for an introduction, a couple of introductions. The Jewish comedian Alan King, said, and I quote, a summary of every Jewish holiday. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. And as a rabbi, I say, he is right, but he is wrong. According to Kabbalah and Hasidus, no two infamous nemesis of the Jewish people ever fought to annihilate the same issue, concept of the Jewish people. Once the Jewish people had conquered any specific theme of the infamous nemesis, they would never have to face that same theme again. 
So every holiday is actually a different approach, a different part of the Jewish people in our concepts, our faith, and our belief, which led that specific infamous um, uh, nemesis of the Jewish people to want to annihilate us. Thus, according to Jewish mysticism, every single holiday serves to a gateway of a different theme, precisely because every single holiday is the victory over a different theme. And thus the question is, what is the theme of Hanukkah? Let us understand what the theme of Hanukkah is, what is the gateway of Hanukkah? So, before I give you the brief version of Hanukkah story, let me first share with you, and I do in my notes, you can print up the notes, um, you have the link there, and you'll see over there a link to a beautiful Chabad um, Hanukkah website, and one of the links in that website is to the story of Hanukkah. Now let me give you the cliff note version. So the king of the Syrian Greeks at the time of Hanukkah was Antiochus IV. He was also known by one of the historians at the time as Antiochus the Madman. He became king in the Jewish calendar year 3586, which in the secular calendar is 174 before the Common Era. Rumors had spread in Jerusalem that Antiochus had been killed in his successful war against the Egyptians. So he went to war against the Egyptians. He was going to go on, and the Romans actually stopped him. And you'll see all that in the details of the history. But for some reason, news spread out in Israel that Antiochus was killed. In response to this, they rebelled against Antiochus's man, who he placed there to rule and govern over Israel. And his name was Menelaus. Now, in response to what the Jews did, Antiochus sent an army upon Jerusalem, killing thousands of Jews and imposing harsh decrees the, the, the forbidding the study of Torah and the performance of mitzvahs. Now, when the soldiers arrived to the city of Modin, Modin was a city where the priests had served in the temples, they lived there. And amongst them was the elder, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of the holy temple, and his name was Matityahu. That's where he lived. When they got there, the Greek Syrian, the Syrian Greek soldiers, they erected a, an altar for their god, and they went on to say and tell Matityahu, you will have to bring an offering as the high priest of the Jews upon this altar to the Greek god. And of course, Matityahu refused stood up a Hellenist Jew, and he said, I'll do it. And Matityo actually killed that Hellenist Jew, and followed by his sons and his friends, rose up, and they went to war against a group of Greek, Syrian Greek soldiers that were there, and chased them away. Now, in response to this, Antiochus now sent an army 40,000 soldiers strong, and there was a very difficult war. And at that time, after many wars were fought, Antiochus finally pulled back his army, and the Maccabees won. So when they won, they marched back to Jerusalem, and they reinaugurated the altar of the temple, the holy temple, the Mizbeach, and that was on the 25th day of Kislev. 
the Syrian Greeks actually stole the golden menorah. They actually made a menorah out of a cheaper metal. According to some teachings, they made it out of the swords with which they fought. And then they looked for oil to kindle the menorah. And they only found one, one jug of oil, which was still sealed by the high priest Yochanan, which meant that it was not defiled, it had not become impure. Now that one jug of oil had enough to last for one night. They had a jug, that's the way you used to divide it, and jugs, one per night, and they would light it. Now what happened was that the it would take eight days for them to process and make and bring new oil to the holy temple and god performed a miracle and the oil which was meant to last only for one day lasted for eight days and thus the sages introduced a holiday of hanukkah with prayers and the menorah lighting so that is the brief story of the story of hanukkah now i want to tell you the story behind the story, which means what is the mystical dimension of the story according to Kabbalah and Hasidus. So I'm going to share with you one point. In our Hanukkah prayer, we add on a Hanukkah prayer in our Grace After Meal, in the Amidah, and it's the famous Al Hanisim. So I want to share with you what it says there. We thank you for the miracles, for the redemption, for the mighty deeds. And goes on to say, in the days of Matisyao, the wicked Hellenic government rose up against your people, Israel, to make them forget your Torah and violate the decrees of your will. But you, in your abounding mercy, stood by them. Now I emphasize the word your, your Torah, your will, meaning the mitzvot. Why do I emphasize it? Because this is unusual verbiage, unusual wording. Normally, when, it, when we say Torah mitzvot, we just say Torah mitzvot, and we understand it. God gave us the Torah, and God gave us the mitzvot. Yet over here, we are precisely emphasizing your Torah. That's what they were fighting against. Your Torah, your mitzvot. Why? So to understand this, we need to understand that the Syrian Greeks had a great respect for wisdom and for culture. Thus, they were not fighting against the wisdom of the Torah and the culture of our traditions and our mitzvot. But they didn't like the your Torah and your mitzvot. What does that mean? That means that the Syrian Greeks had an affinity towards any wisdom which was logical, any culture which was logical, they can study it, they can understand it, they can appreciate it, and thus they will respect it. Now, in the Torah, there is different types of mitzvot. One of the categories of mitzvot is called chukim, statutes. And our sages can say, say upon this, it's in the Talmud, and it's in the Book of Laws of Maimonides, and I quote to you, I ordain decrees, and you have no license to question them. Now, the words license to question them means that even if we do observe and perform these mitzvot, however we intellectually would like to question the logic behind that, even that is prohibited. Now, the Syrian Greeks, they appreciated that even intellect, especially the intellect of any individual, is finite. And thus the actual intellect itself 
demands of us to recognize that there are reasons and causes which surpass the limited capacity of intellect. They could appreciate even that. What they couldn't appreciate and what they fought against was the fundamental faith of obedience to God and divinity of the Torah and the mitzvot. That was what they were fighting. Thus we say specifically that they rose up against your Torah, not Torah, but your Torah. They rose up against your mitzvot, not culture, not traditions, not precepts and commandments, but the fact that they're based upon an obedience to God and the divinity within the mitzvot. That they didn't want. Respect the culture for the logic it contains. Don't turn it into something holy, divinity, obedience, that they didn't like. Now, I want to share with you that this is the unique theme of Hanukkah. They were looking to fight the obedience that we have to the godliness and divinity of our religion. Now, here is one interesting detail that our sages tell us. Many people don't know this detail. We don't talk about it very much when we tell the story of Hanukkah. But I want to focus on this for, for this lecture. The detail says as follows. It's brought in the Medrash homiletic teachings. That the Greek soldiers told the Jewish people, and I want to quote, Kiss Ulechem, write for yourselves upon the horn of an ox that you have no portion in the God of Israel. Now the wording over here follows the theme. Write that you have no portion in the God of Israel. However, why an ox? Why the horn of an ox? What was that all about? And now, let the lecture begin. So, so as you know, excuse me, be, in the beginning of every lecture, I list for you the different Kabbalistic and mystical concepts that we're going to discuss before we come around back to the practical issue. So here are the three mystical concepts. The ox on the chariot. Moses teaches the Shema. And what is the holy horn? And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So let's talk about the ox on the chariot. So in the book of Ezekiel, it opens up with the vision of the chariot. That is the first prophecy that's documented that Ezekiel had. And it talks about how Ezekiel saw the supernal spiritual chariot, the throne, so to speak, of God. Now I want to focus just on one of those verses. And it says as follows. It's verse 10, chapter 1. Each of them had a human face at the front. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left. And each of the four had the face of an eagle at the back. Okay, I just want to share with you, it's beyond the scope of this specific lecture to go ahead and explain all the mystical details that explain the great, marvelous detail um, in Kabbalah and Hasidus. I just want to focus on the one detail that's important to us. And yes, as you can imagine, I'm talking about the face of the ox on the left. So a general quick introduction. In Kabbalah, we look at the chariot having a right and a left representing two different emanations. 
So there is the emanation of kindness, which is the right side, revelation. And there is the emanation of strictness, which is about contraction, concealment, which is on the left side. Now, I wanted to share with you another important concept. In Judaism, monotheism, when we say God is our God, God is one, we are not negating that there aren't many gods and there's only one God. That isn't the true thrust of the faith of Judaism when it comes to monotheism. Our focus is that there is nothing but God. God in his oneness, everything is God and God is everything. Thus in Judaism, you don't have God versus the Satan. Now, if we have only the oneness of God in which God is everything and everything is God, the question begs to be asked, how can there exist Satan? How can there exist the other side? How can there exist evil at all? For this, Kabbalah explains that this comes from the left side of the chariot. Because when we contract and we will conceal, we're creating the possibility through many evolutions of contraction and concealment, we are creating the possibility of ego, of a paradigm of separation, which eventually leads to narcissism, which embodies itself in the other side in evil. Thus, what we're understanding here is that the entire existence of the other side, i.e., the Syrian Greeks who were persecuting the Jewish people, the land of Israel, their source of vitality and sustenance comes from the left side of the chariot, the face of the ox. Okay? Why the horn of the ox? Now, the answer to that is that even the face of the ox upon the holy chariot of God is holy. And from holiness cannot come evil, the other side, egocentrism, self-centeredness, paradigm of separation. That doesn't exist within holiness. Holiness is all about transparency to the oneness of God. Thus, even from the ox, the left side, the source of contraction and concealment, there cannot be a vitality and source of sustenance to the other side. There has to be a quantum leap, contraction, concealment from, from the ox. And from that contraction, that quantum leap contraction, now we can begin the evolution to many myriads of contractions and concealments until we have where the light becomes so weak and the opaqueness of the, of the vessels becomes so strong that now we can even have a minuscule light that would serve as the sustenance and vitality of the other side. That is the horn. Now, in the Talmud, and also brought down in the laws of Maimonides, when it comes to impurity, the laws of impurity, a dead carcass, we talk about the different parts of the animal. And over there, clearly, we're taught in the Mishnah that the law is that the horns and the hoofs of the ox are even more disconnected from the actual impure flesh of the ox even than the hide 
of the ox. Now, from a mystical perspective, what does this law tell us? It tells us that the horn of the ox, of the chariot, is immensely, a quantum leap separated from the face of the ox itself. Thus, we have the source of the potential of contraction and concealment, which is the ox, the, whole, the ox and the holy chariot. And then from there, we go to a quantum leap jump of a whole new, infinitely separated dimension of contraction and concealment, which can be begin the evolution to lead to such narcissism that would create a life force and a vitality sustenance to the other side. Now we understand what the Syrian Greeks wanted when they wanted specifically that the Jewish people should write on the horn of an ox that they have no part in the God of Israel. And the reason here is because the Jewish soul is a piece of God. And thus the Jewish soul doesn't receive from the left side. It receives from the right side, from the interior essence, not from the left side, which is the external expression. What the Syrian Greeks wanted to impose upon the Jews is that their connection should also be only from the left side, i.e. the ox, i.e. the horn of the ox. Thus they wanted them to write on the horn, we do not have any part of the God of Israel. And thus we're disconnecting from the right side, from the inner essence, and going to the external expression. Now, as you know, in Kabbalah and Hasidus, we must fight fire with fire. Thus, if the fight was all about the impure horn, the fight the Jews would have to do is to connect to the holy horn. What is the holy horn? What does that represent? And what is the power of that to cut down the impure horn of the other side? Okay, let's go further. To understand how this works, let us first understand a different concept. The fundamental, ultimate declaration of Jewish faith is the Shema Yisrael. Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one. Now, you know that most often, according to tradition, these are the last words uttered of the lips of the physical body before the soul returns to the heaven. Now, the question is, if this, and not if, being that this is such a fundamental core piece of the Torah in its declaration of faith, of monotheism and oneness between the Jew and God and God and Jew, why did Moses wait 40 years to teach it to the Jewish people? He teaches it only in the book of Deuteronomy in the last 40 days before his passing to the Jewish generation that's going to enter into Israel. He does not teach it to his generation that he took out of Egypt, which all died and were buried in the desert. He's teaching it to Joshua's generation, who's going to go into the land of Israel. Now, to understand this, we need to understand what is the difference between Moses' generation and Joshua's generation. And the answer is that Moses' generation is known in the works of Jewish mysticism as Dor Dea. They are 
the spiritual generation, a generation of knowledge. They spent their entire time um, within spirituality in the isolation of the clouds of glory in the desert. The generation of Joshua is the generation of action, which is going to enter into the land of Israel, deal with all the physicality of the land, engage with the physicality, and there they will perform physically Torah and mitzvot as a nation amongst nations. Now, there isn't a self-sacrifice that is necessary when you're in the spiritual isolation of the clouds of glory within the desert and yearning for nothing more than living a spiritual life. Self-sacrifice begins when you leave the spiritual domain, have to engage within the physical realm to be a nation amongst neighboring nations and to perform Torah and mitzvot. This demands self-sacrifice. Now, by self-sacrifice here, I don't necessarily only mean under times of persecution. I'm talking about to sacrifice the egocentric need to understand Torah and mitzvot, to have an appreciation of feelings for Torah and mitzvot before I can actually perform it. Thus, we have the self-sacrifice of the generation of Joshua, which the generation of Moses didn't need. And thus, Moses doesn't give the Shema Yisrael to his generation of spirituality. He gives it to the generation of Joshua, the generation of physicality, knowing that for Jews to actually physically study Torah and do mitzvot, they would have to be able to sacrifice their neediness for understanding first, for feeling first, for appreciating first, and to be able to embrace the obedience of the commandments. Now, let's go on to understand this in a little bit of a deeper level. So, there is the blessing that we make before we do a mitzvah. Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu melech olam, asher kidishanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu. Blessed are you, God our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us. The terminology commanded us, not taught us. He commanded us, tells us that the fundamental concept of performing mitzvot, not just the statutes, but even the judgments, such as honor your father and mother, don't kill, don't steal, these need to be on the foundation of commanded us. Commanded us demands obedience. Thus we have the amazing teaching of Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, the previous Rebbe, who said the following. A. Our mishpatim judgments, the logical commandments, have to be performed together with the obedience that we have for the chukim statutes. And on the other hand, B, the chukim statutes has to be performed with the good taste and pleasure that we perform the mishpatim judgments that we do understand. Thus, both types of mitzvahs need to carry both 
concepts. We need to be able to perform all mitzvot, even that of the mishpat with obedience. And so too we must, we must be able to perform even the obedient mitzvahs of chukim, statutes, with the same pleasure and good taste that we perform the mitzvot that we do logically understand. And thus every single mitzvah has two intentions. On one hand, every individual mitzvah has its own intentions of what it accomplishes in the spiritual realms and in the self-refinement. However, there is the overall encompassing intention, which is, We are doing this for no other reason of obedience to fulfill God's will. He commanded us and we obediently fulfill. This is why we have the Shema Yisrael and not those who live in the spirituality of the clouds of glory in the desert. Because it is this obedience of performance that demands the self-sacrifice of the egocentric mind and heart of the human being. And now let's move on. What is the holy horn? We spoke about how the horn represents the impurity, the quantum leap of contraction and concealment, which leads up to such a minuscule of light and such a, a thickness of the opaqueness of vessels that we have this tiny drop of light, which can become the source of the other side. Now we have to fight that with the holy horn. What is the holy horn? So let's explore what this is. The Talmud speaks of the prophecy of Chana. Now, Hannah was the mother of Samuel the prophet. Samuel the prophet was the one that anointed King David. The Talmud discusses that Hannah was a prophetess. And the Talmud says, one of six prophetesses. And the Talmud says, and how do we know that she was a prophetess? So it talks about a prophecy she gave about how her son Samuel will anoint, after her passing, will anoint King David. Let me read to you that piece of Talmud. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And her words were prophecy in that she said, My horn is exalted and not my pitcher is exalted. Why was that a prophecy? The Talmud goes on and explains. As with regard to David and Solomon, who were anointed with oil from a horn, their kingship continued. Whereas with regard to Saul and Yahu, who were anointed with oil from a pitcher, their kingship did not continue. And thus this was the prophecy that her son Samuel, who she's praying for to have a son, will anoint the King David and King Solomon with oil poured from a horn. Now the question here is, what does the fact that it, it was a, the anointing came from the oil of a horn rather than of a pitcher, make that king, the house of David should have eternal kingdom. While the fact that the king before David, King Saul, who was anointed from the oil of a pitcher, should not be an eternal kingdom. Why? What does the horn have to do with that which is eternal? So to understand this, we'll also understand the conversation between King Saul and Samuel the prophet, 
when Samuel the prophet rips his cloak and says that God has taken the kingdom away from you and given it to one more deserving of you. And he was referring to King David. King Saul turns to Samuel the prophet and says, Will not God be able to forgive me and allow the kingdom to remain in my dynasty? I want to quote you the verse that Samuel responds. Chapter 15 in Samuel 1, verse 29. And also the Netzach, Hebrew word, we'll soon explain it. And also the Netzach of Israel will neither lie nor repent. Over here, repent means change of mind. For he is not a man to repent, again, to change his mind. Now, what does that mean that God does not change his mind? God is at the moment changing his mind. He gave the kingdom of the Jewish people to King Saul. And now he changed his mind and is taking it away from the King Saul and giving it to King David, creating out of it the Davidic dynasty. So what is the difference that by when come once gives it to King David? No, now we're talking about Netzach Yisrael and he won't change his mind. Well, when he gave it to King Saul, obviously it wasn't Netzach Yisrael and therefore he could change his mind. What is that all about? So let's understand what Netzach Yisrael means. The definition of the word Netzach, Nitzachon, means victory. Now there's something very interesting about the faculty of victory, the way it exists in the human soul, which is a reflection of the way it exists in God. For let us make mankind in our likeness and image. So what is it about this specific emanation, which later turns into a faculty, an emotion called victory? What happens is that when a person enters and connects with the faculty of victory, it's all out. All bets are off. By a king, when a king goes to war and it touches his faculty of victory, it enters into the to be or not to be, the essence core. And for that, the king actually squanders some of his greatest, greatest treasures to be able to afford for the simple foot soldier ammunition to win the war. Now, if you're wondering what this feels like, think about how many times a person will work and pay thousands of dollars in court fees and legal fees to prove that he was right over an issue of a few hundred dollars. That comes from the, it's a matter of principle, which comes from the faculty of Netzach, victory. So too it is by God, so to speak. In the ten emanations, it is specifically the emanation of Netzach, victory, which goes ahead and connects, so to speak, to the essence core of God, of omnipotence. Not only omnipotence, but also eternity. The word netzach also means eternity. Netzach leolam va'ed. Netzach means eternity, and the two definitions, victory and eternity, are intertwined. Why so? Because we just said that it is the faculty of netzach, victory, matter of principle, that connects to the core essence. The core essence never changes. Essence bilti mishtana. The essence never changes. And thus the essence is where the power of eternity lies. 
Unlike anything which is of the expression and not of the essence, we have the great teaching of the famous Rabbeinu Bechaya in his commentary on the Torah in Genesis that says, Tinok Mishenolad, an infant, from the moment it is born, it goes on to decompose. Because that which is not core essence will decompose. And thus the composition is from the day of birth. For that which is only from the external, not from the essence, from its very beginning, it's not eternal. From the very beginning, it decomposes. While that which is connected to the essence of God, which never changes, I was, I am, I will be, that from its very conception is eternal. Thus we have the power of Netzach Yisrael, the eternal, omnipotent, core essence of God. Now let us understand why is it that King Saul's kingship did not come from Netzach Yisrael, only from an outer expression of a faculty, which we'll soon discuss, while King David was the connection, the embodiment of the core essence, Netzach Yisrael. To understand this, we're going to turn to a teaching in a Kabbalistic book called Tree of Life, Eitz Chaim. Now, just that you know, there's a verse in the Torah that talks about a non-Jewish king called Saul. It's not talking about the King Saul, which lived millenniums later. Rather, it's talking about the King Saul in the, before the Jewish people entered into Egypt. Nevertheless, in Kabbalah, because his name is Saul and his name is Saul, Kabbalah extrapolates what it says about this Saul on a mystical level to the other Saul, the Jewish Saul. Saul. Now, it says over there like this, King Saul, Merechovot Hanohar. Merechovot Hanohar simply means Rechovot is a name, Nahar, the river. And that's where he was from. Now, in Kabbalah, a well represents the intellect of wisdom. The river which comes forth from the wells of the underground, they represent the intellect of understanding. The word Rechovot actually means a great width. Thus, Kabbalah says that King Saul was the absolute completion of the intellect of understanding. Now, that is huge. Imagine the absolute embodiment and completion of the emanation of understanding. Like, wow. But nevertheless, the emanation of understanding does have a finite capacity. Because it comes from external expression, it's a faculty of the soul, it's not the essence of the soul. And so too it is in the supernal chariot, in the emanations of God's shining into the world. While on the other hand, King David comes from that, that emanation which is called kingship. Kingship is the representation of total humility, a total emptiness. It's interesting that we're taught that King David was supposed to be a stillborn. His very years of life didn't belong to him. 
Some opinions say Adam, who was supposed to live a thousand, only lived 930 because he gave 70 years. And others say that the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, each gave a certain amount of years that equaled 70. Thus, the kingship, the emanation of kingship, is the feminine emanation of the moon, which has no light of its own, but reflects the light of the sun. Now, what this means to us is that this absolute humility, transparency, allows it to be open to the essence core to shine through it. Thus, kingship functions on obedience. The king doesn't explain himself. The king gives the decree and the subjects obey. And now, as you heard before, obedience connects us to the netzach. The obedience is the only way to connect with that core essence, omnipotence, eternal of God. Thus, because King David was the absolute transparency to the core essence and not the mighty power of some specific individual expression, faculty, emanation, thus King David connected with the core essence and it was eternal. While Samuel did not connect with the essence and therefore it was not eternal. Now let's go back to Hannah's prophecy. Hannah is telling us that the holy horn, the horn from which Samuel anointed King David, unlike King Saul from the picture, the horn represents the obedience. It represents the connection to Netzach, which connects us to the omnipotence of the core essence and therefore eternal. Thus, we now understand that the holy horn with which the Jews had to combat against the impure horn is specifically the obedience to the godliness and the divinity in the Torah, not the logic of understanding or the appreciation of feelings, but specifically because they put aside their logic. Under persecution, when they could have said, well, listen, at this point, halakhically, we don't have to. There's only three things that we need to sacrifice our life for. We don't need to sacrifice our life for Rosh Chodesh or the other specific decrees, Brit Milah, the specific decrees that Achashverosh fought against. And nevertheless, they went beyond the logic, even the logic of Torah, and they had the self-sacrifice of absolute obedience to the divinity of the Torah, your Torah, to the divinity of mitzvot, your will. And that's specifically how they use the holy horn to cut down the impure horn. And thus they were able to open up for the miracle where the core essence, that one jug of oil, that piece of God within us, which never can be defiled or become impure, lasted for eight days. This is the secret of Hanukkah. Once we connect to the holy horn, once we connect to Netzach Yisrael, once through the transrational, illogical obedience for the divinity of Torah and mitzvot, then we enter into the realm of miracles. This is what the Jewish horn is all about. And that's how they opened up and brought about the shadow that God reacts 
we connect with our Netzach, God connects, so to speak, with his Netzach, and a miracle is performed. Now, in closing, how do we create miracles in our lives? The Baal Shem Tov teaches that the only difference between nature and miracles is that nature's happens, con nature happens consistently within a system. However, in truth, nature is no less of a miracle than a miracle is. Thus, we say in essence that nature and miracles coexist on different parallel planes of reality. Which one we connect to, nature or miracles, is a reflection, remember, God is your shadow, of how we choose to connect with and to serve God. When we, when we only allow ourselves to connect with and serve God through our finite systems of understanding and of feelings, then we are going to live within the realm of nature and its finite logical ways. However, if we are willing to experience a self-sacrifice of being in control through our intellect, and are willing to enter into the infinite netzach of obedience, even when we aren't in the comfort of our understanding and appreciation of Torah mitzvot, then we can connect with the realm of infinite miracles. Thank you, and a happy Hanukkah.